Welcome once again to our uh, service, and today, of course, is the second uh, Sunday in Advent, a season that's an important uh, season which kicks off the church calendar and church year. Um, I don't know how many of you have heard this story about an unscrupulous painter named Bill. Yeah, it could be Bob or any other name, doesn't matter. <laughs> but he used to try and uh, cut corners by thinning his paint as he you know, goes and paints does his painting jobs. And one day a church hired him to paint their church. And so he happily went about it. He quoted the lowest price because, you know, he uses the least amount of paint. And he began painting and, you know, he was very happy. He was coming to the end of the project and then suddenly a thunderstorm broke out and he got struck by lightning, knocked off the scaffolding and he realized, oh dear, I've done something wrong. And he cries out to God, God, forgive me, what must I do? And a voice came from heaven and said, repaint, repaint. Thin no more. That's a dad joke or pastor's joke. Never mind. But anyway, what we are uh, at is in the season of Advent. And Fleming Rutledge, uh, uh, a wonderful preacher and pastor from the US, she's written a book which is a collection of her Advent sermons. Uh, She says this about Advent, which I think is powerful. Of all the seasons of the church here, Advent most closely mirrors the daily lives of Christians and of the church. It asks the most important ethical questions, presents the most accurate picture of the human condition, and above all, orients us to the future of the God who will come again. I've uh, you know, done this uh, a lot and shared with you what Advent means. Advent is uh, based from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming. And it's a season in the church here that we not just look back to the coming of Jesus uh, in the incarnation, Christmas, i.e., <laughs> but also to the fact that Jesus is coming again. Advent reminds us that we live between these two times, the already and the not yet, that Jesus has ushered in the kingdom of God, but the fullness of the kingdom of God has not yet come. And as a result, we still live in a world filled with sin and the effects of sin. We still live in a world where there is pain, where there are all kinds of problems, where we are being challenged and asked about how we live in the light of what we face. And on the second Sunday of Advent, very often the character we look at is uh, John the Baptist, the one who was spoken of as a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now, admittedly, John the Baptist is not the most um, um, Christmas-like character. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen a Christmas card like this. (laughs) You brood of vipers! You know, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Not a very uh, uh, cuddly Christmas message, is it? And yet, I think, you know, he's a key figure for us to look at. And I want to take some time just to look at this passage of Scripture in um, Matthew's Gospel, which uh, paints a picture of John. And in verse 8, you know, the message which he uh, uh, spoke, especially to the religious leaders who had gathered to hear him, he said to them, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The indictment that John brought to them 
the first hearers of this word was, are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? You know, Jesus used this uh, uh, picture as well. Every tree that is good will bear good fruit. A bad tree will bear bad fruit. The proof is in the pudding, in, in a sense. You know, if you are truly saved, do you live as one who is saved? One who has uh, been born into righteousness. And he's warning that judgment is coming. That the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Don't presume. That's a word which is very hard for us to ignore. You know, most of us would much rather have <laughs> a baby Jesus in our Christmas cards. Because there's nothing threatening about a baby, is there? And we enjoy that cute and cuddly uh, uh, um, picture. But how does this explain for John's popularity? I mean, it's not an easy message that he preached, and yet it, we see in this passage of Scripture the crowds were flocking to him. And I think it's because of the fact that he was a, a person who brought a timeless message. He was truth-telling. He was pointing out to people where they really were. And the message of John, the austerity of John, you know, wearing camel hair clothes, uh, a belt of leather, and eating locusts and honey, basically speaks of the fact that he eschewed, you know, the things of this world. And it's an indictment against the prosperity that we enjoy. And, you know, he points to the fact that not only is he bringing a message of repentance, but he points to Jesus, that Jesus will come. He will baptize us with the Holy Spirit and fire, and a winnowing fork is in his hand. And ultimately, as he sorts the wheat from the chaff, that which will last and that which will not, there is an unquenchable fire that will burn up everything that will not last. This is a hard message for us. You know, last week, as you know, weekend I was in Vietnam, and um, many times when we go to uh, countries around, we realize how prosperous we are in Singapore. Uh, it's a beautiful city. I, I love Vietnam, and I, I, I uh, enjoy going to visit, you know, the foods. Oh, man. Amazing, right? <laughs> and you can tell I love my food. But uh, the reality of, you know, how we live here in Singapore, whether you like it or not, Singapore is one of the richest nations in the world. Therefore, if you live in Singapore and you earn an average wage, you are really in the top, what, 10%, maybe even 5% or, or 2% of the world in terms of wealth. That we are very, very prosperous. And because of that, you know, the message of Advent, the message of Jesus' soon return is not oftentimes a popular message or one that we want to think about because we enjoy life here and now too much. But I believe that John's message was really attractive, especially to those who were poor and who were oppressed, those who did not have a lot to lose, who are looking to justice you know, uh, um, Isaiah's prophecy talks about the fact that there was no justice in the land and God would come and visit His people to bring justice that they longed for. That all the things that were wrong in the world are going to be made right. You know, the reality of uh, our lives, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standards. It's true. 
that life isn't the way it should be, that all of us fail to live up to God's standards. But may I suggest to you, more than us not living up to God's standards, actually we even fail to live up to our own standards. I've been reflecting a lot on this issue of perfectionism, and you know, it's something that plagues our society, especially in Singapore, because we live in a society that uh, elevates meritocracy. And so there's a a real sense that we need to achieve and um, be the best that we can be. You know, and, and I'm not talking about, you know, striving for excellence, but I'm talking about the fact that in our strife, our, our, our um, um, attempt to reach excellent uh, uh, outcomes, we often fall into the trap of perfectionism. And it's a very thin line between the two. And perfectionism always is, uh, intends that we need to be perfect. But, you know, truth be told, we will always find someone who is better than us. And we find that we perpetually fall short of the standards that, you know, either society or I was speaking to the young people yesterday, you know, sometimes parents put standards out there that uh, hope that our children will accomplish. Or even ourselves, you know, we, we, we have this desire to reach uh, an impossible standard. And for some of us, you know, I don't know if you recognize this, but, you know, oftentimes uh, social media doesn't help. Right, where you begin to compare yourself with others. And you look and you watch their social media feed and say, wow, these people are doing so well. Right? And then the humble brag, oh, you know, my child did uh, so wonderful. They finished their primary school. Their PSLE results, come. I can't remember. Now it's no longer like 235 or 240. It's like four points, right? Or something like that. <laughs> and and they, they, they humble brag about that. But, you know, you feel the anxiety welling up. And sometimes you may point and say, yeah, social media is the ill. You know, the net result is that when we find we can't reach these unattainable standards, the anxiety overwhelms us. And burnout is the net result. And Helen Peterson writing about this subject of burnout and looking at younger generations, uh, millennials in particular, entitled, uh, a book entitled Can't Even how millennials became the burnout generation, she said this, Deep down, millennials know the primary exacerbator of burnout isn't really email. The primary accelerator or the cause of burnout isn't really email or Instagram or constant stream of news alerts. It's the continuous failure to reach the impossible expectations we've set for ourselves. And may I suggest to you, this is not a problem just for millennials. It plagues us no matter what age we are. We find ourselves in a place where we fall short in all that we attempt to do. All the achievements which we have laid out for ourselves. And, you know, we struggle with that. That is the reality that we face in life. But what is our response to that? How do we try and overcome that? Our human response oftentimes is, let's try harder. Let's, you know, put our nose to the wheel and, you know, press in and do our best. Or the flip side is, well, if that's the impossible standard, forget about it. I'm just going to do my own thing. (laughs) And we rebel. And uh, that is often our response. 
Yet we know this, that Jesus is coming and He will judge us. But you know what? He will judge us not according to our achievements. His winnowing fork, uh, which will uh, uh, look at us uh, or, or sort us out, is not based on what we do, but ultimately based on what He has done. That the story of uh, uh, um, the gospel is really this, you know, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it talks about the fact that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots, which shall bear fruit. The same picture that we see that John talks about, that ultimately the axe that was laid at the root was taken upon uh, Jesus on the cross. That he was the judge who is coming to judge us was ultimately judged in our place. That judgment fell upon him at the cross. That he took the axe that was laid at the root so that we ultimately find our righteousness in him. That divine exchange that takes place. So the solution ultimately is not to try harder or to rebel, i.e. become either very, very good or very, very bad. The solution ultimately is to place our lives in Him. In other words, to surrender to Him. You see, we need a power outside ourselves to save us. And this is so alien to us as human beings. You know, that's why John actually addressed the uh, religious leaders who came. And he said to them this, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. How often do we rely on our status, on our upbringing, on uh, the privilege that we have, you know, because we have better genes, or better set of morals, or even, you know, a better theology than others. John warns that that is not the solution. Instead, he says, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham, that God is the one who raises the dead to life. That all have passed away, the new has come. That behold, we are new creations. That there is a change of heart that happens because of what God is doing that happens from the inside out. Uh, W.H. Auden, in his, um, um, uh, one of his uh, uh, poems, said this, and it's a haunting phrase, but I think I, 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 I love it. It says, Nothing that can save us, nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle, i.e., our human efforts cannot save us from our human ills. We need something outside ourselves to save us. The answer then is exactly what John said, is for us to repent. But what's the difference between repentance and remorse? Right? It's easy sometimes to get confused. Um, Fleming Rutledge, again, oops, I didn't have the, my apologies, I thought I put it up, but I didn't put the quote up. Uh, she says this, Repentance doesn't just mean being sorry. It means a change of life. It means reorientation toward a different goal, the kingdom of God. 
It means a whole different way of being. That, you know, the solution to the fact that we fall short is the solution that God gives us in uh, Romans chapter 3, from where we get that verse, uh, um, you know, uh, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's useful to look at it in its context because in it, uh, Paul already points to the solution God has for us. In verse 21 of Romans 3, it says, But now God has shown us a way to be made right with Him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone, for all have sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins, for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life, shedding His blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when He held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For He was looking ahead and including them in what He would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate His righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law, it is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith, not by obeying the law. And do you recognize how transformative the message of the gospel is? Not just the assurance of salvation. You know, that's ultimately, uh, obviously very important. But it should transform the way we relate to others as well. That who we are and where we are is not because of what we have done, but because of what He has done. Therefore, we cannot sit in judgment or sit and look down on anyone else and say, oh, you know, get your act together. Because the reality is, if our act is together, it's not because of our ability, but because of His grace that has been available to us, that He met us, that He saved us, that He brought us to where we are. That we cannot sit in judgment of people, for example, who are less fortunate than we are. You know, I've often found myself sometimes uh, uh, the, this type of thinking creeps in. Oh, you know, uh, these people are poor because they haven't worked hard enough. Or these people don't, um, um, you know, do the right things, make the right decisions, the right choices. You know, how is it they're so uh, uh, frivolous uh, with the way they spend their money, right? And, and it, it, there are all kinds of actions which they do, obviously, which are not wise, but, you know, what I have is actually a gift, ultimately, that I happen to be brought up in a good home and have experienced uh, the grace of God in my own upbringing that allows me to be where I am. And if I see it all as grace and see it all as the good news of Jesus Christ, then it gives me a compassionate heart for those who are less fortunate. 
And it gives me that impetus to bring this message to them as well. And I hope in this season of Advent, as we reflect on the fact that we live between the times, that you know, Christ has come and He has saved us, that we will be uh, reminded of that in the, the meal that we are about to receive at the table of our Lord, that we recognize that He is coming again and that we are called to be His messengers, to be, in a sense, like John the Baptist, willing to proclaim this message to others, to point the finger towards Jesus, who is the one who saves us. Let's bow our heads in the word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, again for your word. Thank you for John the Baptist who came, Lord, to prepare the way for your son, Jesus. For the message of repentance that he preached, that is so important for the world to hear, but more important, Lord, for us to hear ourselves. Lord, your word tells us that friendship with the world is enmity with you. That when we succumb to the courtship of the world, we, we, we put ourselves in the place of the world's values and systems and what the world thinks is important, Lord, we often put ourselves at odds with you. Forgive us, Lord, for allowing the things of this world to so overshadow you and what you have done for us. And I pray in this season you would remind us of that once again. To evaluate, to take stock, or to examine our own hearts. And to be reminded that, Lord, this world is not our home. That we are pilgrims that are passing through. That ultimately our home is with you. Teach us, Lord, what it means to live in the light of eternity. We ask and we pray these things in your Son's most precious name. All God's people say, Amen. Thank you. Well, church, we have now come to a time of intercession. May we sit or kneel as you feel uh, comfortable or comfortable.